Uh, I've been in Texas all week in the promised land, and, uh, but I'm back. I know I've got a glow about me. Uh, I left the boys and Lindsay with the grandparents for this week. I'm going to go back and get them next weekend. And um, I called last night, FaceTime, and Noble took the phone and he said, Dad, I've been in timeout. I said, ooh, how was that? And he said, not good. So uh, things are desperate there in Texas, but I slept great last night. I, I mean, I, I don't know why. It was just a really nice night. So um, Philippians 1 is where we're going to be today. We're finishing up our Go 901 series. We're going to be in Philippians 1, 27. So if you've got a Bible and want to open it there, if not, there's Bibles in the back on that cart. You're welcome to take one as our gift to you, or you can see it on the screen behind me as we go. Philippians 1, verse 27. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I'm going to start with a terrifying story, but it ends really well. Okay, so hang with me. It's the dark of night. Angie O'Gorman, she's a single woman. She's asleep in her home by herself in her bed. And she hears this awful sound, her bedroom door being kicked open. And in walks this man she's never seen before in her life. And she can't see his eyes, but she just feels them glaring at her. And she said that in that moment, a fear and vulnerability just swept over her like she had never felt before. And also at that moment, she began to have a bunch of thoughts, a bunch of thoughts running through her mind. But she said that one of those thoughts, by some reason she can't explain, crystallized. And the thought was, either we are both, he and I, gonna get through this night safely, or we're both gonna be hurt. If he hurts me, I'll be hurt, physically, emotionally, worse. But if he hurts me, he also will be hurt. His life will be changed. And if he goes to prison for what happens here, it'll be even worse. And she said that that thought, amid all the other thoughts she was having in that moment of vulnerability and fear, freed her, not from her fear, she said, but from fear's ability to control my response. That's what she said. So the first thing she said to this man who had just come into her room and was now standing over her was, "Uh, do you know what time it is? And he looked at his watch and he said, it's 2.30. And she looked at the clock on her bedside table and noticed that it said 2.45. And so she pointed that out to him and she said, I hope your watch isn't broken. When was the last time you said it? And, And he answered her. So they talked a little bit more and eventually she felt comfortable enough to say, so how did you get into my house? And he said, I, I broke the window in the back door, reached through and opened it. And she said, oh, that's gonna be a problem for me because I don't, I don't have the money to replace a window right now. And he shook his head apologetically and he understood he'd been having money problems too. She said she understood that. And 
They talked for a little bit longer. She said, we talked till we were no longer strangers and I felt comfortable enough to ask him to kindly leave. And he didn't want to. He said he didn't have any place to go. And so she said, okay, I'll get you some bed sheets, but you're gonna have to make your own bed downstairs. You can stay the night. So he did. He took the sheets, went down and made his bed. She stayed awake in her bed all night, shivering. And in the morning they got down, she came down, he got up, she made him breakfast, they ate together, and he left. Okay. What happened in that room, and what does it have to do with evangelism? Because that's what we're talking about right now in this Go 901 series. You heard Chris two weeks ago talking about evangelism. You heard Scott Sager and Amy Lively last week talking about sharing the good news with your neighbors. That's the series we're in in this Go 901 series. What we're talking about in this series is what what we know to be true. Jesus tells us all to go and make disciples of all nations. And we know that there are those who are not yet disciples of Jesus all around us right here in the 901. So we want you to go on short-term missions. We would love for, you, love for you to be sent out on a long-term mission. But what we ultimately hope is that you will be, in your own context, the city set on a hill. That you'll be this light to those around you, that you will go to the 901 to reach those who are not yet disciples of Jesus. Which brings us back to that story about Angie O'Gorman in that dark room. I think two things happened there. One, there was a woman who was afraid, but overcame her fear. And there was a man who was so surprised by that, that he changed his course of action. He was undone. He's converted, really. It's a conversion in the simplest sense. I'm not saying he accepted Jesus in that moment. I'm saying his path was redirected. That's the simplest definition of conversion. It's like Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul doesn't accept Jesus on the road, but neither did this guy in the house, right? That's something that happens later, but both in a moment are radically reoriented. Their direction is changed. And so in school, a lot of times we talk about context. And and you remember this, what's the context for this piece of literature? What's the context for this event in history? And so I think with this story, what we might wanna ask is what is it that creates this context where conversion happens? And I think that had she been hostile and violent and afraid, which would have been very expected, right? That he was ready for that. That's what he was anticipating when he busted into that room. But when she responded in the way he wasn't expecting, when she seemed unafraid, when she was kind and hospitable, that he was not prepared for. And it disorients him in ways he can't understand. It creates in him wonder. Wow. And Walter Wink has said, it seems nearly impossible for the human psyche to be in a state of cruelty and a state of wonder at the same time. You just can't do both. In other words, in other words, he is converted by wonder at the sight of her fearlessness. 
But, but let me return to her one more time before we move on because she says something that I think we should resonate or think about for this sermon. She says, the thought that they would both get through that night safely or both be damaged didn't free her from her fear, but freed her from fear's ability to control how she would respond. In other words, fear's a real thing. It's real. Let's not trivialize fear. So in 2015, I, I preached a sermon. You might remember it. I, I think my mom's the only one who remembers my sermons. I don't know who I'm kidding there. I preached a sermon and it was a really simple sermon, really simple. It was about refugees and about the ongoing crisis in Syria, the civil war there that's been going six years, the millions of displaced people. And theologically, the sermon was really simple. Okay? I pointed us to the numerous texts where God expresses his concern for the refugees and aliens and strangers, his desire for those, our, his people to take care of those refugees and strangers because they themselves in this world are aliens and strangers. Really simple sermon. I had so many awesome conversations with you all after that sermon. So many just God honoring, holy conversations. And I had one conversation that did not go well. It was just this really godly woman who I just love and adore. And when I talked to her, I could tell she was noticeably upset. I mean, visibly. It was written all over her face. And she said, we shouldn't let Muslims into this country. We shouldn't let Muslims into this country. And I get it. You know, I wrote this sermon three weeks ago with this illustration, and two attacks have occurred in those three weeks, right? just here in America. I get that by Muslim extremists. I get why she's afraid of that. And I told her, I understand that. I get it. I'm afraid too. I mean, we live in this world where you could be someplace doing something totally safe and it could all be taken from you like that. Yeah, that's terrifying. But, you know, Jesus tells us to love our enemies tells us to love our neighbors, tells us throughout scripture to welcome the stranger and the alien, and I just can't get over that. And she said, well, that's just not practical. And I said, I understand that, but you would be so disappointed in me if I got up or Chris got up on Sunday morning and said, this is what the Bible says, but surely God didn't mean it because it's not practical. You would be so disappointed in me if I said that. And so, ma'am, I just, I can't get over that the world makes decisions based on how practical things are. And in the kingdom of God, that is not a consideration. I said, Jesus, who we follow, decided to die on a cross on our behalf. And that was anything but practical. And he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. And she said, well, he may have called you to that, but not me. I think about that conversation all the time, all the time, because she's a really good woman who reads her Bible all the time, prays all the time. She's just afraid. She's terrified. And I am too. I get it. But can you get to this place 
where fear doesn't control your ability to respond. Uh, after I preached that sermon, there was a group at Highland who began to raise money to pay for a Syrian family to relocate from a refugee camp outside of Syria to Memphis. And they raised about $8,000 overnight to do that and relocated them through World Relief. It's two parents, four kids, lost everything in Syria. And I had coffee with a dear brother, this man I love and respect deeply after that happened. And he said, Eric, I hope they haven't made a big mistake. And I said, me too. And we don't know what's gonna happen. That story is still yet to be told. They did arrive, they got relocated to Memphis. They're doing well, the bridge builders refurnished, they're furnished their apartment, so they're living on all of our furniture. And just a few weeks ago, that Syrian man called up one of our bridge builders leaders and said, you absolutely changed our life. You changed our life. And we don't have a lot, but we wanna say thank you. And so can I prepare a Syrian meal for you all? And so we said, uh, sure, yeah. And so out of his own pocket, this refugee fed about 40 Highlanders the other day, about 40. And I know that some came to that meal wondering, is this safe to eat? Is it safe? And it was, there was a lot of hummus. A lot of hummus, right? It was great. I don't tell you that story as a giant, I told you so. In fact, in fact, what if something terrible had happened? What if something terrible does happen? Which is very possible. Then what? Does that change what we should do? That's really the question Paul's raising in this text. It's the question he starts with, whatever happens, whatever happens, he says, as citizens of heaven live in a manner worthy of the gospel, whatever happens, whether Paul gets out of prison, he's in prison right now or not, whether he dies there or gets out, whatever happens, okay, whether, um, whether these Christians suffer for the cause of Christ or whether they don't and suffering is far more likely, he says, whatever happens. Whether these preachers who are stirring up trouble for Paul while he's in prison and can't defend himself, whether they keep doing it or don't, whether they ruin his reputation or don't, whatever happens. Whether they are martyred for the cause of Christ like Stephen or not, whether they live peacefully into old age or die young, whatever happens, he says, he says, stand firm together in the gospel, whatever happens, and this is the key, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, Paul knew what it was like to be afraid, probably better than any of us. Paul several times is run out of town by angry mobs. He has angry mob. Can you imagine angry mobs gathering around him, ripping his clothes from his body, stoning him nearly to death? Paul's on a ship that goes down at sea. Can you imagine that? Paul is bit by a snake. Legend has it that Paul is martyred ultimately. But at this point, when we see Paul in Philippians, he's in jail. 
He's in jail, and there happens to be a lot of criminals in jail. Probably not the place. He just wants to hang out. That's where he is. And yet he has this disposition in the verses leading up to this in Philippians 1, that whatever happens, it's going to be okay. Whether he lives or dies, it's okay. Whether he goes to be with Christ or stays to be with this church, it's okay. Ignatius calls that indifference, indifference, a spiritual term. When we think about indifference, it's like a bad word, okay? Uh, Like when we get in the car with our spouse and say, where do you want to go to dinner? And they say, I don't care, right? You know what I'm talking about? We sit down at night on, you know, finally put the kids down, sit down on couch. What do you want to watch? Oh, I don't care, right? Okay. It seems like a bad word. And that's, Paul absolutely cares, what happens. It's just that whatever happens, he's convinced God's gonna be glorified. Whatever happens to him, whether he stays in prison or not, whether he lives or dies, he belongs to God and nobody and no thing can take that away. Somehow he gets to that point and then turns around and looks at the Philippians and expects them to be there too. And turns around and looks at us and says, You should have no reason to be afraid. At the center of the gospel message is that whatever happens to those who belong to Christ, it's okay because they're going to be with Christ, which is better by far, he says. Whatever happens, you have no reason to be afraid, which should remind you of Angie in that dark room. He says, if you face the world without fear, and this is critical. This is a sign to them, the world, that they'll be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. And so to understand that fully, you've got to understand Paul. He is not celebrating that somebody might not be saved. Okay? He's not celebrating someone's destruction. It's like 1 Corinthians 5, where he tells the church to kick out this sexually immoral brother, and the language he says is, hand him over to Satan which sounds really severe, and it is. The idea being that once this brother realizes he is outside the saved community, he's gonna be terrified and he's gonna jump back in, okay? Realizing you're in trouble can scare you straight, he says. It can redirect you, it can convert you. All right, let me pull these strings together and tell you a story. All right, he is saying that when Christians face the world without fear, that the world looks on and realizes we have something that they don't have because they're afraid of everything. And when they see that we are not afraid, they will want what we have. All right, he's talking about conversion, evangelism by fearlessness which seems like something to think about. Because we're living in this season of constant fear, aren't we? I mean, everything you see on TV, everything you hear on the radio, everything you read in the newspaper, it's like two ends of the spectrum, politicians and terrorists, and both are playing the same game. The only way to get people's attention is to make them afraid. That's the only way you get people's attention. 
And Paul says, no, 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 not you, not you. He says, you don't never be afraid. It's a double negative in the Greek, but they don't work the same way in Greek. They don't cancel each other out. Are they doing English? It's emphasis. What he's saying is, I don't want you to ever be afraid of anything at all. Nothing in this world should make you afraid because you know where you belong, you're citizens of heaven, and you know that you are destined for salvation. And so nothing can change that or take it away from you. I don't want you to be afraid of anything at all. And if you do, if you can manage that, you might be surprised who you save. In August of last year, I boarded a bus in Nashville, Tennessee with 10 white preachers and 10 black. And we drove down into Alabama. And we stopped in Birmingham at the 16th Street Baptist Church where church was bombed on Sunday morning. And these four little girls wearing their Sunday best were killed, right? All black church in the middle of Birmingham. And we drove from there to Montgomery and we got out of the bus on Commerce Street named because that's the place where you bought slaves, Commerce Street. And you can walk up Commerce Street and see where the slaves were held in stockades still. And as you walk up Commerce Street and you turn left on Dexter Avenue, there's this little circle. And that circle at Commerce and Dexter Avenue is where Rosa Parks boarded the bus that changed history. And we stood there and we thought about her for a moment. And what you, you may not know is that there was this young brand new lawyer Uh, named Fred Gray, who defended Rosa Parks. And Fred Gray happened to also be a Church of Christ preacher, which might make you a little proud. Walk up Dexter Avenue, past Dexter Avenue Baptist, where Martin Luther King Jr. preached. And we went from there to Tuskegee, where the government withheld treatment to black men with syphilis to see what would happen to them if it went untreated. And we went from there to Selma, And in Selma, we parked by the Edmund Pettus Bridge and we walked together side by side, these 10 black preachers and 10 white. And the Edmund Pettus Bridge has this crest in the middle of it. And as you come up over that crest, you are almost expecting when you get over the rise in the middle to see the wall of state troopers that those 500 marchers saw 1965. You remember that? You've got this wall of 500, sorry, 500 in a line approaching this wall of state troopers. And in the front of that line is this young Christian named John Lewis, and he's got an overcoat on. He's got his backpack and his hands are in his pockets. Remember this? And you wonder how badly those hands were sweating as he looks at that wall of state troopers. And next to him is the Reverend Hosea Williams, a reverend, a minister of the gospel, standing right beside him in the front of that line. And they walk up to the state troopers and they ask to speak with them and they say, no, no, go home. And they just stand there. Before you know it, the state troopers charge on the line with clubs and horses and tear gas. And Amelia Boynton, who was 54 at the time, is beaten and a picture of her blood coming from her head is memorialized on the front page of papers across the country. Amelia Boynton, who never missed a Sunday at church, laying there on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, bruised and bloodied. And a strange thing happened after that Sunday, bloody Sunday it was called, an unexpected thing. The whole world was watching. And what they were seeing was Christians 
like John Lewis and Hosea Williams and Amelia Boynton and 500 others who were dressed in their Sunday best because they had just come from church were marching up over this bridge absolutely fearless. And the world realized they have something we don't. And so a few days later when they marched, there weren't 500, there were 3,000. Everybody came to Selma. They were converted. The guards around Paul and Philippians see this man that's unshaken. He is unsullied by the conditions there. And they are converted. You've got this man at the foot of the cross below Jesus who looks up and sees this man hanging above him who would rather die than run. And he praises God. Christians are marched into the arena one after another to be killed by animals. And somehow the number of Christians in the Roman empire grows and doesn't shrink. And in the third century, this plague sweeps across the Roman world and Christians are the ones who stay back to care for the sick when everybody else leaves. It's the start of hospitals there. And it's also the start of Christianity being an accepted religion in the Roman Empire. Why is that? Well, you know why. There is something about fearlessness that can change a man or a woman or an empire. It can change an empire. You know, I wonder how many people outside of this church, inside of this church, are praying for brothers and sisters here who are sick. How many who said they would never pray again, get by their kids at night on their knees and pray for people they love here who are facing sickness, unafraid. I mean, it's at times when I have doubts about this whole business I talk about on Sundays, that I get to look at Highlanders who are facing the world absolutely unafraid. And I remember, oh yeah, this thing we talk about is real. It's true. And some people say, well, you can be fearless and wrong. That's absolutely true. But the thing about Christians is if we are afraid, well, then we are wrong. Everything we preach about is a lie if we can't preach about it and at the same time be unafraid. Can you do that? I think you can. Because you belong to heaven and are destined for salvation. What have you to fear? What have you to fear? And if you can live without fear, you might be surprised who you save. And that's a sweet deal. Let me call the praise team up here as we end in worship. Will you stand and sing? And while you stand, let me just say, if you do not have this fearlessness inside of you and you wanna know more about it, if you wanna take on Jesus in baptism today and turn your life over to the one who oversees that heaven we're destined for, then I'd love to receive you down here in front and talk with you about baptism or one of our shepherds will receive you in the back for prayers. Let's sing. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. So humble yourselves in the
the side of the Lord. 